Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about circulating libraries. We are returning to Northanger Abbey for today's reference. As we know, Catherine's time in Bath is spent pursuing two hobbies, two very important hobbies, <laughs> Henry Tilney and Gothic novels. Yes. This scene happens to incorporate both. While on a walk with the Tilney siblings at Beecham Cliff, Catherine starts talking about something very shocking indeed coming out in London. Miss Tilney thinks this is a reference to some political upheaval, and they talk at cross purposes until Miss Tilney asks Catherine to have the goodness to satisfy me as to this dreadful riot. <laughs> Catherine replies, riot? What riot? And then Henry jumps in. And so he explains, well, my dear Eleanor, the riot is only in your brain. He's, he's like, okay, you two have been miss, missing what each other is doing. So he says, what you're thinking is happening is actually a book. And then he says, you talked of expected horrors in London, and instead of instantly conceiving as any rational creature would have done, that such words could relate only to a circulating library... She, meaning Eleanor, immediately pictures herself in a mob of 3,000 men. And then he goes on to explain this, like, he gives this very dramatic retelling of what might be happening in London. So basically, the two women have been, you know, Catherine's talking about her novel, Eleanor's talking about political upheaval, and Henry Tilly's like, no, 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 circulating libraries. That's what we're trying to talk about here. (laughs) So circulating libraries, also known as lending libraries, were businesses that lent out books to paid subscribers. And we should say that all the history we're covering here is UK-centric. The earliest evidence of formal businesses called circulating libraries dates from 1725 with Alan Ramsey's Circulating Library in Edinburgh. Though there are some advertisements for people renting out books as early as the 1660s, so the idea had been around for a while. Mm -hmm. But the early 18th century is when the idea really starts to gain traction. By the 1750s, there were at least nine circulating libraries in London, and their popularity just continued to grow from there. Exactly. Outside of London, the circulating libraries developed a little bit slower, which makes sense, except for in major spa towns like Bath, which had its first circulating library as early as 1731. So the libraries that Catherine and Isabella Thorpe might have frequented in Northanger Abbey were very well established at this point. By 1790, there were around 600 lending libraries in business, with an estimated 50,000 individuals partaking of this bounty of books. (laughs) And their growing popularity, especially amongst women, was frowned upon by those who saw them as trash or as being a bad influence. Mm -hmm. As Paula Byrne says in The Real Jane Austen, To the consternation of moral commentators, there was a veritable epidemic of female novel reading. So... (laughs) The message there, you know, lock up your daughters. (laughs) Illicit reading is happening. These circulating libraries were incredibly popular. So popular that there was actually even a book titled The Use of Circulating Libraries Considered, which is essentially like how to start your own circulating library. It's a guide for that, which I love. And it's actually a really great resource for us today to get kind of a better understanding of how circulating libraries worked. So circulating libraries also outside of metropolitan areas were actually rarely substantial enough of of a business on their own. So they were often really combined with some other business. So according to the Oxford Encyclopedia of British Literature, stationery and the sale of books and newspapers were the most common adjuncts. But libraries also frequently combined with trades in hats, medicines, teas, perfumes, and tobacco, as well as with barbering. So, you know, go get 
your tea and candles and a good haircut before you settle down <laughs> with your book, you know, set the mood, really. <laughs> Well, and this is like any bookstore that you go into today. There's going to be a fairly substantial gift section yeah. with all the merch. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. So that's, I mean, we're, we're still just kind of channeling circulating libraries when we go to our bookstores. Or even just like the combination bookstore coffee shop, right? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. In order to have access to these books, you had to pay an annual or quarterly fee to the library. And the fee would have been roughly the equivalent cost of buying two three volume novels, or more specifically, about two guineas in the early 1800s. This meant that only middle and upper class readers could really afford these fees. Yeah. And as these were really privately run programs, people, you know, running their own businesses, so they weren't all run the same way. But a typical subscription would allow you to get two books at a time, only one of which could be a new release. And the new books had to be returned within two to six days, while the order older books could be kept for up to a month. You had to like slam through your new your new releases, <laughs> get those back because there were fines for late returns. Sometimes you have to just purchase the book. And some of the more established libraries also had mail subscriptions where you could check out more books for longer and have them kind of delivered, which, you know, delivery service for your library books. It sounds like something, a very contemporary thing, really. <laughs> In the 1790s, many libraries started tiered services that meant you could pay more for better access, which, again, kind of is in alignment with modern subscription services, yeah. not just for books, but for everything, everything that there is. So just depending on the circulating library, there might have been different, like if you paid more, you're going to have longer due dates, better access, what you would expect, right? Yeah, yeah. This also reminds me of a tweet that went semi-viral um, a year or two ago when someone posted something about having a conversation with their spouse and they're like, oh, I wish... There was a Netflix for books. <laughs> They're like, oh, I paused. And then I realized that I was actually just talking about libraries. <laughs> so, I mean, all of this really, you know, the fact that there's so many contemporary parallels, it really just makes us realize that we're really just constantly making the same things new again, right? Shout out to all the libraries out there. We heart libraries for sure. We love our libraries. We love our, our librarians. librarians. Exactly. So as we mentioned earlier, circulating libraries also had a cultural reputation for mostly dealing in trashy novels, just big, big scare quotes around that. Yes, yes. It was such a weird cultural phenomenon, but it's one that actually was very popularly represented in one of my favorite cultural references, which is Richard Brinsley Sheridan's 1775 comedy, The Rivals. And in this play, the protagonist, whose name is Lydia Languish, which can we just, you know, <laughs> pause and enjoy that for a moment. But Lydia Languish is obsessed with library books. And so she's actually having her maid smuggle them into her house since books were not always kind of considered approved content for young ladies. And so there were definitely there was definitely a concern or stigma in certain quarters at this time over what women were reading, whether they were reading novels or of more approved works. At one point in the play, Lydia is actually hiding all of her novels from her aunt, Mrs. Malaprop. Again, loving that name. But her aunt, Mrs. Malaprop, is coming in. And so Lydia hides her books behind Fordyce's sermons, <laughs> which I love so much. It's like the ultimate cover. It's all good. I've got my Fordyce's sermons. <laughs> oh, this dust jacket? Oh, it's totally. <laughs> Don't look underneath the dust jacket. Everything's on the up and up. Don't worry. <laughs> and of course, if we're going to talk about Fordyce's sermons in relation to circulating libraries, we have to talk about that scene in Pride and Prejudice. When Mr. Collins decides to read Fordyce's sermons after being invited to read aloud to the ladies. So the rest of that quote is, 
Mr. Collins readily assented, and a book was produced, but on beholding it, for everything announced it to be from a circulating library, he started back and, begging pardon, protested that he never read novels. (laughs) It's so good. It's so good. But these circulating libraries were actually really largely kept afloat by these female subscribers like Lydia Languish and Kathleen Moreland and the Bennett sisters, as well as Fanny Price. So perhaps as a byproduct of this, according to the Oxford Encyclopedia of British Literature, again, publishing houses associated with lending libraries were over two times more likely than other publishers to publish fiction by women, which is what led to the publication of literary rock stars like Frances Burney and Anne Radcliffe. And those are books that Austen most definitely read. Minerva Press was a publishing house known for specializing in these types of books. In fact, most of the horrid novels that Isabella recommends to Catherine were put out by Minerva Mm -hmm. Press. And for me, there's a big modern comparison here in how romance is one of the most popular genres and actually accounts for a huge percentage of sales in the publishing industry today. And there are a lot of romance readers and they spend a lot of money on books. And this is a genre that's typically, you know, kind of coded as for women, right? Mm -hmm. Like these are books for ladies. But romance novels and the people who read them are still frequently dismissed or made fun of today. And kind of being dismissed as inconsequential, despite the fact that they're like powerhouses for publishing houses. There's a lot of parallels. It's just interesting that we haven't moved on you know, 200 years later and we're still having this exact same kind of conversation exactly. about like bah, women writers, women readers. You know, what is this? Just rotting their brains. Right. <laughs> but what's so interesting about circulating libraries and the fact that we are still having these conversations 200 years later is that circulating libraries were really the beginning of a more democratized access to public knowledge and power and authorship for women. So as much as like that kind of gets dismissed still today, it's this cornerstone of having women's voices. Of course, this access to to the libraries and authorship, this is still heavily influenced by the privilege of wealth and leisure. But novels were a format that was really primarily the most accessible kind of genre for for readers, as well as the easiest one to get published in for women authors. Obviously, at the center of Northanger Abbey, it's a novel about reading novels. And that's why the narrator near the beginning of the book has this rather, has a rather impassioned defense of the novel. You know, it's very meta right there. And I won't read the whole thing, but there is a passage here that's worth mentioning. This is from early on in Northanger Abbey. Such is the common cant. And what are you reading, miss? Oh, it's only a novel, replies the young lady, while she lays down her book with an affected indifference or momentary shame. It's only Cecilia, or Camilla, or Belinda, or in short, only some work in which the greatest powers of the mind are displayed, in which the most thorough knowledge of human nature, the happiest delineation of its varieties, the liveliest effusions of wit and humor, are conveyed to the world in the best chosen language. Just mic drop. (laughs) It's just a mic drop, exactly. And Austin's like, yeah, novels they're badass. (laughs) And Austin even puts some of her defense of the novel into her hero's mouth in Northanger Abbey. At the very beginning of their walk, and before Eleanor and Catherine's miscommunication over circulating libraries, Catherine brings up the mysteries of Udolpho and says to Henry, but you never read novels, I dare say. And he replies, why not? And she says, because they are not clever enough for you. (laughs) Gentlemen, read better books. (laughs) Oh, sweet Catherine. And Henry's rather unequivocal response is, The person, be it gentleman or lady, who has not pleasure in a good novel must be intolerably stupid. And thus a million mugs, t-shirts, and tote bags were born. Right? He even goes on to specify that he has, quote, read all Mrs. Radcliffe's works and most of them with great pleasure. So he's pretty full-throated in his defensive novels, including those perhaps considered popular but not good, you know, quote unquote, in Mm -hmm. certain circles. So 
you know, whatever your opinion on Henry Tilney, you cannot accuse him of being a literary snob. Right. Yeah. I, I love that he's like, yeah, I read I read Radcliffe and I read it in two days and I was totally into it. Yeah. He's not pulling any punches. He's he's very into it. I mean, Henry and Catherine's book club, <laughs> their wedded bliss book club. I just, <laughs> how cute. Very cute. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Well, and I think that these circulating libraries, they obviously, they crop up in other places throughout Austin's works. One of the more notable examples that I I think is worth mentioning, especially in the context of what we're talking about in terms of like the empowerment of female readers and authors, there's a mention in Mansfield Park that I think just we have to touch on because Fanny becomes a a subscriber to a circulating library when she's, you know, forced to go back home to Portsmouth to live with her family. And so there's this part where she has decided that she and Susan are going to try and improve themselves. And so here's the quote. Fanny found it impossible not to try for books again. There were none in her father's house, but wealth is luxurious and daring. And some of hers found its way to a circulating library. She became a subscriber, amazed at being anything in propria persona, amazed at her own doings in every way to be a renter, a chooser of books, and to be having anyone's improvement in view with her choice. She is really feeling in awe of her power as a, as a subscriber to the circulating library. I think it's a fascinating moment in Fanny's development because she's no longer just having books handed to her by Edmund. She's actually like the fact that she has this moment, like I'm a chooser of books. The fact that that's incredibly empowering to her and the fact that she's also doing this on behalf of Susan again, another female consumer. And I think that that's really kind of a beautiful moment for Fanny in her own, like, here's who I am as a human being, apart from whatever else is happening at Mansfield. Well, and for somebody who for so long at Mansfield was just relegated to the background, treated not like a beloved family member most of the time, just for her to be in this position where she has that power. And the way that Austin writes it, you know, you can just imagine her delight oh, yeah. I am making this choice. This is my decision. I am going to be a subscriber. I get to choose the books. It's a real moment of power for her. Yeah. I should point out, though, as the passage goes on, it actually talks about like the things that she wants. You know, she has a taste for biography and poetry. She doesn't say that she's going to get novels. <laughs> That's not a Fanny thing. Yeah, I can't really picture Fanny staying up all night reading <laughs> Mysteries of Udolpho, but... But, you know, she's got to get her Cooper fix. You know, <laughs> yeah, she's got exactly. to be able to, like read biographies of famous naval officers, you know, she's got, she's got her own tastes, but it's so empowering for Fanny. I mean, that is the beauty of the library, right? There's something for everyone. Yes. And Austin was herself a circulating library subscriber and used subscription libraries throughout her life. We have this great passage from a letter she wrote to Cassandra on December 18th, 1798. I have received a very civil note from Mrs. Martin, requesting my name as a subscriber to her library, which opens the 14th of January, and my name, or rather yours, is accordingly given. And then she continues on. As an inducement to subscribe, Mrs. Martin tells us that her collection is not to consist only of novels, but of every kind of literature. She might have spared this pretension to our family, who are great (laughs) novel readers and not ashamed of being so. But it was necessary, I suppose, to the self-consequence of half her subscribers. Oh, love it. Just what a good burn. I just love it. It's so good. Okay, you think you're too good to read these, like, lady books. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's like, um, give me my novels. I love them. So does my family. And of course, we know from what we know of Austin that she does read poetry and plays. Oh, like, sure. she, she reads everything. I love how the cultural bias is, Im- is embedded in her, in her writing here, right? Where she's like, Mrs. Martin is worried that people aren't going to subscribe if it's just the novels. 
And so Austin is like, okay, first of all, that's ridiculous. But also it gives us a really good snapshot of the fact that this wasn't, this isn't something that we're just historically imposing upon this moment. It was an existing kind of taboo. And Austin's like, I'm not having it. (laughs) I mean, just that she might have spared this pretension to our family. Like, come on. (laughs) Weird novel readers and not ashamed of being so. I love it. I love it. It's so beautiful to have that kind of stamp of approval for all things that circulating libraries can be from Austin. I feel like this is just a great opportunity to say that if you haven't gotten yourself a library card and you have access to one, make that happen for yourself. Absolutely. And again, shout out to any librarian listeners that we have out yes. there. We love you. You can find us on Instagram at the thing about Austin and on Twitter at Austin underscore things. You can also check out our website, thethingaboutaustin.com, and email us at thethingaboutaustin at gmail.com. And you can always leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, which just makes us so happy. We wanted to share this review from, if it's not Baroque, which is the greatest username ever. <laughs> Love it. And they say, cool focus, interesting angle to focus on one item or subject throughout Austin's works or something that was a thing in her lifetime. Thanks. To which we say, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> <laughs> and stay tuned for our next episode where we'll be talking more about Fordyce's sermons. So we've kind of whet your appetite with this episode. Look forward to the next one. The moment you've all been waiting for. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.